Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10. We're at verse 20. In your pew Bibles, that can be found on page 575. Please open there or have uh, whatever version you have, your electronic version, your own hard copy, or portion of it is on your insert. The outline is more helpful because the full of the passage uh, isn't there listed. I'll just read a few verses to begin, and we will work through to uh, verse 34, the end of the passage, the end of the chapter. God is bringing discipline upon his covenant people when Isaiah is writing uh, in the form of a foreign oppressor called Assyria, the power of the day. God always has a purpose for his actions, especially related to his covenant people. These are a corporate people that he has called, given an identity to, and has made a commitment to preserve and expand them. Now, it's not just for their own sake. It's for the sake of his plan of redemption. He starts narrow with a nation. It's always his plan to bless all the nations through the sons and daughters of Abraham. In fact, the true definition of Israel comes to be all those who trust in Christ. But at this point, He's focused on the corporate body, the nation of Israel. And he's disciplining them because they have forsaken him. Now, for the nations to look at Israel, they would have seen Israel as one country. But in reality, they had divided, really officially divided. They had two different kings, two different capitals. There was the north and there was the south. The north was ahead of the south in their apostasy. They had worse kings in the north than they did in the south. And so God brings judgment upon Israel, but he starts with the north. And he does so by bringing a godless nation, Assyria, upon them. And we have seen that in the buildup to this passage. So this chapter is recording the time that Isaiah is noting the advance of Assyria upon the north of Israel and the south of Israel looking up to that advance, expecting fully for them to make all their way, down, their way all the way down to them. Even though Israel was undergoing terrible pain and hardship, discipline, the prophet paints a picture of future restoration. And it's in line with God's covenant promises for a kingdom. Their discipline will not last forever. There is a purpose. There is a hope. And there is a lesson for us personally and corporately in this passage. Here as I read Isaiah 10, starting at verse 20. I'll read to verse 25 as it is listed on your insert. This is God's holy word. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you, as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we see the constant failure of mankind. We are confronted regularly with the pervasive sin of people in society and leaders. Lord, as we 
read the report in your word, we see the failures of even the nation that you led out of slavery and into a glorious land and prosperity. We see the godlessness they display, looking like the godless nations around them. Your justice brings action upon them all. Yet, you keep your word. You are going to preserve the covenant people in order to bring the covenant promise to consummation in the person of Jesus Christ. Where all the kings of earth have failed, you will restore to the throne of David and even surpass it when you send Jesus. Now in our times, we await the final coming of Christ the King. Lord, encourage us by your promises to the covenant people of old that we might see your timeless promises to your covenant people today who are gathered here in your name. I lift this prayer in the name of our eternal King and Messiah, Jesus Christ. Amen. God's discipline of his people, that is a recurring theme in Scripture, a theme that we would do well to pay close attention to concerning no matter what time in which we live. Now, I don't want you to miss two overarching themes that we see now starting to take form more fully now in Isaiah 10, and even more so in Isaiah 11. It's by God's providence, I believe, that as we come to Isaiah 11, he introduces the Messiah King and the coming of the king in a fuller way than we've seen already, even from Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. And it's going to develop even more. We're going to get a picture of God's kingdom coming. And the beauty of this, and this is the theme I want you to not forget as we move through, and I'll do my best to not let you forget it, but there's an overarching reality here. God is displaying the utter failure of man to lead man. Uh, Whether it be the Assyrian kings and leaders, they fail miserably and are disciplined and brought under God's judgment. Even the Israeli kings are failing over and over again. Man's kingdom, run with human leadership, always fails. It's always deficient. And so God is going to bring a king to end all kings, the king of all kings. And he starts to introduce this in the midst of the depression about the failure of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of man, because Assyria is not going to last long after this. This will actually be their final judgment what they do to Israel. God is putting on full display the true king, King Jesus. And they will know of a restoration in their generations, not immediately, where Israel comes back to the land and God preserves Judah. Israel in the north is essentially lost, dispersed. And those who are in Judah will be used of God to bring Messiah, the real king. So they'll have an immediate seeing of prophecy fulfilled as God restores them back to the land after a time of captivity, a time of deportation and disbursement. But the ultimate thing that we await is the final coming of King Jesus in consummation when he comes again. That's the overarching theme we shouldn't lose sight of with Isaiah. That's what he's building towards. But there's something else here in the passage that speaks to us as covenant people today. It's very personal and very, it's corporate, for our local church, but it's also very personal as we see how God deals with sin in his people, how he brings discipline, but how he brings repentance, how he moves us uh, to conviction, and he turns us back to him away from the things that we trust wrongfully. It's a more personal application of what we see here. It has to do with God's personal dealing with the covenant people, the called out ones, the church, and those of us in it. In preparing for the coming king, he's working to sanctify his people, to prepare them for his coming. 
that's true in this time and is true today. He prepares them by making them ready. He gives them an understanding of their sin, repentance for it, and faith in him. He does this by sending hardship, and he sends discipline. In this case, by sending a foreign oppression, although he does it in many ways. God graciously sends hardship to purify the church and sanctify the saints for the sake of King Jesus. Let's look first at starting at verse 23. 23 to 34 kind of gives you the picture of what will come to pass in their time. The discipline of God being applied, but also the restraint of God to not bring utter decimation. Remember, the Assyrians wanted to utterly decimate. But God was using the Assyrians as his tool of discipline, and there were limitations on that. And that's always true of God's discipline of his people. Temporary and purposeful. Verse 23 says, For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed, in the midst of all the earth. He will do his purpose, and he will end at at, at that point. In verse 24, there's really a word that focuses on the southern kingdom, because the northern kingdom was already being overrun. The southern kingdom, looking north, sees what's coming, and there's understandable anxiety. God uses this to call them to a, at least a temporary repentance and a building up under Hezekiah and another good king to give them long, a longer period of time before they receive discipline. Their total discipline time is, lo- is much shorter than the north when restoration happens, and they are the only ones fully restored. But the south, they're looking with anxiety and seeing what's happening in the north. And so verse 24 really speaks to those in the, nor- in the south. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. This is important. He makes reference to the Egyptians. He'll make reference to the time of Gideon too. Two great deliverances of Israel. This is important for the people in Isaiah's time to call them back to recognize that God can bring great deliverance. So yes, the Assyrians are mighty, They're scary, they're intimidating, they're brutal, they're intent on taking over the earth. But remember what God did with the Egyptians of old, that powerful nation that everyone acknowledges. And please understand, there are people hearing the words of Isaiah. It may be a small amount, but there are people who are genuine believers. They trust in the Messiah to come. They trust in God's provision for salvation. But there are too few of them. They can't turn the tide of the nation. And they have to endure the discipline that God will bring. So God speaks this word, and the faithful in the midst of those enduring hardship hear it, and they're held fast. Now, this is important for all of us. One of the most important applications of the Bible's teaching for Christians today is to realize God's full glory may not be realized in our lifetime, but it should still give us great excitement that God will vindicate himself. Even if we don't see it in fullness in our life, he will do it. In every Lord's Day when we come in, we bring glory to God no matter what's happening around us, no matter what pressures come upon us, what persecutions come, we still give praise to God because he will vindicate his name. And that's important for the people in Israel's time who would not see this restoration, but they would know that the Assyrians, the Assyrians would learn who the true God is, and the nations would as well. And the faithful in the midst were encouraged by this. But God's discipline ultimately then comes as a function of his grace by purifying, by making us aware, by causing some pain that will bring health. Isn't that true of things that are so important, things that are effective? They hurt at first, but then they come with healing. 
God has, therefore, a purpose for whatever hardship or pain or discipline you are enduring. I think of medical procedures like this, how you have to go through some pain to get healing. A few days ago, I started breaking out in poison ivy because I had been exposed earlier in the week, and it was breaking out everywhere. In, I didn't touch it everywhere, just on my arms, but then it started my... I looked like Rocky Balboa after the Apollo Creed fight. You remember how he looked? That's what I looked like yesterday morning, and I was afraid it would get worse and be a complete distraction to you. So, and I, you know, I thought about wearing a wrestling mask, maybe, like a Nacho Libre mask for the sermon, but I didn't think you could possibly look at me seriously if I did that. So some brothers told me, you need to go get a shot. Now, I don't mind shots, except for when they're the size of one that a horse should get and not a human being. So I go into the urgent care, and for 350 bucks, I got to get this massive shot. I mean, imagine a Coke bottle. All right, maybe about a tenth of that size, but at any rate, it was big, and it had a lot of stuff in it. And I'll just leave it there as far as its administration goes. At any rate, I needed the shot, though. I was itching, like, I, I was itching per- terribly. I mean, she, she walked in and saw my face and said, oh, she, I mean, get the shot. You know, it wasn't even like asking me some questions. So I got the shot, and it hurt. It hurt. I felt like, are you, are you done squeezing that thing? Go ahead, finish it off. I mean, get it in there, right? Do what you got to do. It hurts. I don't like it. But within an hour, my eye, the swelling in my eye went down, and a real strong anti-inflammatory, and it had steroids in it too. In fact, I am on preaching-enhancing drugs this morning, PEDs. We'll see how that works. I don't want to make it a regular thing. I mean, you know, but as far as today goes, that's what happened yesterday. And so it, there's immediate relief to it, and yet I have some discomfort, but nothing like yesterday. It hurts at first. You see it coming, and it hurts, but it, it heals in the end. That's what God's design is for discipline, for hardship, for pain. It's temporary for us, his people, but it's real. It's serious. There's no denying what it feels like, but we do recognize and get comfort from knowing he has purpose. He even describes it this way in Israel's time. In 20, verse 25, he says, For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. Now, it didn't feel like a very little while for those enduring it, but in the bigger scheme, it was. And my anger will be directed to their destruction. He'll turn from the discipline he's exacting in Israel, and he'll turn to the Assyrians, and he'll bring them judgment. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a a whip, as when he struck Midian on the rock of Oreb. That's through the ministry of Gideon and the spew that he delivered. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it up as he did in Egypt. What an encouraging thing for an Israelite to hear. A faithful Jew who trusts in God's deliverance. Yes, what he did in Egypt. He'll do that for our nation again. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder. And I love this picture. And his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fat. You will become so strong that they won't be able to put a yoke on your shoulder and it won't fit anymore. You'll bust out of it. To encourage the wayward Israelites who looked more like the children of the godless nations and the people of God, he refers them to the deliverance. The deliverance is God would refine Israel and make them strong again to where they would be too strong to have a yoke of bondage placed on them. Now God depicts the coming uh, destruction of Assyria But 
before he does it, in verse 28 down to verse 32, he describes how they will pass through the north and come up to the the cusp of going into the south, thinking themselves they're going to take out the south next. And look what God promises to do. And this is to comfort those, especially in the south now. It says in verse 28, He has come to Aeth. He has passed through Migron. At Mishmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass at Geba. They lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galam. Give attention, O Lasha, O poor Anathoth. Madmana is in flight. The inhabitants of Geban flee for safety. This very day, he will halt at Nob. That's right up to the border. He will shake his fist at the Mount of the Daughter of Zion in the hill of Jerusalem. They'll look at the south. They'll want to take the south, but God's going to stop them. They're not going to be able to have that advance. It won't come in Assyria, the discipline for the south. Verse 33, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. Imagine you have bushes that you are trimming and you take the shears and it just drops off whole portions and you can shape the shrubs this way. It just lops it off. They're going to come to the border and want to cross over the border and God's going to lop the boughs off with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. God is issuing a statement about something that he would do to bring an end to this period of discipline and pain. He would do so to work conviction in the people of God who were faithful, to recognize their need to repent and to turn back to God. This is the refining impact that discipline and and pain cause in our lives, even when it's difficult. It turns us back to where we need to trust. Now, before I go further, I want to make mention of uh, consistent teaching of Scripture about God's discipline towards his people. I think this is important as we recognize even this episode. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount refers back to God's work in the Old Testament that then connects us to how this impacts us and how we can derive a right understanding of God's discipline in our lives. I want to say at the outset, when people come and say, I have this pain or this turmoil or this struggle in my life, this trial, the first thing the pastor hopefully doesn't say to you or we don't say to you is, well, God's disciplining you. We don't know that. We know that pain is also a way that God brings refinement to someone who's not in some habitual sin. It's just God loves us and wants us closer to him, and he brings something to our life. We can't say it's discipline every time. We just know because of what's happening here that that's the case, and God does use discipline. And I say discipline, not punishment. Punishment is what he meted out on the Assyrians. Uh, Discipline is for his children whom he loves and wants closer to him, so he disciplines. With that, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The faithful among the Israelites were being persecuted, even more so than their fellow Israelites who had already apostatized, because now they love the true and living God and claim his name. They're going to be persecuted. It says, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's always been the way that the people of God have endured persecution and suffering. And God does it for a reason. He allows it for a reason. He brings it for a reason. Remember, the sovereign hand of God is not moved by man. He has his purposes. 
a beautiful thing happens in the early church. After Jesus ascends, the apostles are on fire. I mean, they preach the gospel. They're bringing the message of salvation in Christ. The kingdom of God has come. It says in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and the prayers. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Uh, early on, they gained favor. The, the gospel was spreading. The church was growing. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. But you know what happens soon after. Oppression comes upon them, first from the Jews themselves, people that should have recognized Messiah, turned on those early Christians, and were leading the charge against them and bringing the secular powers into play to persecute the church. One of the worst was Saul of Tarsus. It says in Acts chapter 8, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, who was killed under the watch of Saul, and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is what I love. This is what persecution does. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Then, Acts 9, just like God to do this, he takes the worst enemy of the church and he turns him for Christ. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This is Acts 9. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling down on the ground, he heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's Jesus speaking. And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Later in the passage, as he is blind and trying to get his sight back, God sends poor old Ananias to him. Imagine Ananias having to go to this terrorizer of the church and, and check up on him. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is chose, the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, everybody, of all people. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Wait, he promised he's going to, use, he's going to make success for the kingdom through this guy, but the guy is going to suffer for it. I'm going to show him how bad it's going to be. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, Paul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was a Christ. Success, right? Growth, right? Guess what happens next? When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. The same Jews that sent him to persecute the Christians were now wanting to kill him because they saw that he had turned. That's what happens, by the way. No matter what a TV preacher tells you, if you become a Christian, there will be people who want to kill you. Now, it may not happen for us immediately right now, but our brothers and sisters in most of the world are dealing with exactly that right now as we sit in a certain level of comfort, which I'm grateful for. But let us not lose sight of that reality for Christians, for the church, for the rest of the body. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly the name of the Lord. So he gets kicked out because he's going to get killed, and he goes into hiding. No, he goes and preaches boldly the message of God. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, the Greeks. So he got the Jews mad. Now let's go ahead and get the Greeks mad too. But they were seeking to kill him. 
And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. It was being built up. People wanted to kill them, but they were growing and they were being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That's a key phrase to tie back to our passage. They walked in the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man. They didn't rely upon the hand that struck them, the Assyrians. They relied on the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the one the only one we should really fear. That's Acts 9. There's a general hardship that is guaranteed for Christians, and it is a refining act of God to bring this. There, there's also a discipline that God will bring, and it happens in the lives of his children, our, we as his children, and it's for our care and for our growth and for our refinement. In Hebrews chapter 12, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are, an illegi- you are illegitimate children and not sons. A loving parent disciplines their child. We do so imperfectly, but it's a lie to say you love your child and not discipline them, even if the child doesn't understand it at the moment. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our own good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Disciplined is not a bad word. It disciples us. It trains us in godliness. Paul was given difficulty, and he pleaded three times about a particular one, that it would leave him. But God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that by the power of Christ it may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. So there is a clear guiding teaching about God's discipline and his use of trials in our lives as Christians, that we might understand it. Now, we go back to the passage before us, starting at verse 20. God's gracious discipline serves to purify, first, the church corporate. Let's think corporately now. Us is the body of Christ. Look at Isaiah 10, verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob, and this is such a beautiful phrase coming up, will no more Lean on him who struck them. Do you remember what they were doing wrong? They were leaning upon the nations to help them with their security, to give them their prosperity, to hold them stable. They leaned upon the godless who brought in with them their godlessness. They leaned on them and not on God. But after this discipline has its work, the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord the Holy One of Israel, in truth. That should be the goal of the church. God will bring pressure to bear that we would not lean on the wrong things. Turn from false securities, lean on God. And you'll notice it's a relatively small amount of people. It says in verse 21, a remnant will return. That's the for a second time, he's used this term remnant. That's a smaller portion of the whole that, was started, that started out. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, that's the fulfillment of 
the multiplication that God promised Abraham. That's true. There, there, there are many, many of them. But only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. It will produce a righteousness. God's discipline serves to purify the church. Hardships will reveal those who have true faith. When things are comfortable and safe, it can be hard to discern who are really Christians. When it's popular to be a person of faith, it's hard to know who is sincere. Who is sincere. When it's painful, it costs something. That's when we find out who is really trusting in Christ. The work of God's discipline is a purifying work. We see it here, and it's corporate and individual. I was trying to think of the most uncomfortable thing I could bring up to shake us. Because it'd be easy for us to think, well, you know, we're faithful, we preach the word, and we're going to stay fast no matter what the culture does around us. Because I promise you that pressure's coming to bear. For the longest time, I think people would hear changes in culture and society, and they would think, oh, we'll still be all right. We still have this, and we still have that. I think you have to be somewhat foolish or naive to think that there aren't serious, serious pressures going to come to bear on the church and those who call themselves Christians. I don't think this is fantastical or if it's somehow alarmist to say that in a short while we will have a price to pay for being faithful to the Word of God. So, in what ways might we be leaning on the arm that's actually striking us? And I think corporately that one of the major ways that we should be ready, it seems simple enough, and we enjoy this place we have, but we should pay it off. We are in an affluent area, and we don't want to be, we want to be fat when they try to put the yoke upon us. And that comes from giving. And I think oftentimes we hoard the stuff we have for whatever we think we'll need it for, and we don't think of the corporate health of the church, not just this church, ministries that support the growth of the church, the preaching of the Word of God, the Bible in its propagation, the planting of new churches. Those are things we should be giving desperately towards in preparation for whatever might come so that we be too fat to put the yoke upon us. I know personally this is a, it's an area of idolatry for me to hoard or to think of more stuff. I don't know what it's like for you. And if you know you're giving sacrificially, it's not, it's not, this isn't going to impact you. It's only tweaking you if you know there's some adjustment to be made. How much investment are we making to the corporate life of the church? We need to think about how we are leaning on the wrong things and how corporately we could be strengthened by our collective work towards being faithful to God in this so that when it comes, whenever it comes and however it comes, the church can remain strong in propagating its message with no pressure that will make us change it. The church has always had to learn faithfulness no matter the circumstances. For the first three centuries of Christianity, there was a great cost for naming Christ. The time of the apostles, all the way to the time of Constantine. When Constantine legalizes Christianity around 310, you have this explosion of growth in the church because they have councils with the leaders who had been faithful under persecution. Now they emerge from, from the shadows, from literally the catacombs, and they plant new churches, and they grow, and they get together to clarify what the Word of God says. And it goes well for several hundred years. But after they get uh, comfortable and too close to the, the governing powers, if you will, too enamored with leaning upon 
hands that would eventually strike them or had been striking them, uh, corruption comes in. And God brings discipline. And over a period of centuries, it takes a long time before there's repentance in a remnant that reforms. And we see it, the gospel reborn and the Bible propagated, just the things that we have celebrated just last month. That's the cycle that happens. The numbers might decrease, but the commitment and genuineness rise and the potency of the ministry is better. Refinement, corporate refinement, is part of God's purpose in using persecution. A recent example, I think, that uh, for most of us is poignant because of our connection with ministry in the former Soviet Union, uh, the countries that used to be, make up the Soviet Union, especially Moldova, through ministries and missions that we've had. In 1989, the Berlin Wall came down, and the fall of uh, communism came with rapid speed after that, if you remember that. I remember vividly only because I was just graduating high school and started college, and I went to Moody Bible Institute. And for years before 1989, there were uh, people who lived in the Soviet Union who were pastors and missionaries who, who left, who got out of the Soviet Union to go to Bible colleges and seminaries to learn to go back and build the church up. As it turned out, the the reports coming from there were alarming. The church was doing very well, not in buildings, but they were meeting underground. And you want to talk about refining. I mean, if you're going to claim the name of Christ, it could cost you your life. So they're going to be serious about what they believe. They didn't have time for, for superficial stuff. And these people coming, I remember meeting a pastor, Victor Krutko. He was, he was in his 30s when we met him, and I was 19. This man's commitment, I don't know what he must have thought of us American 19-year-olds, but he had seen things we could not imagine. And they got him out of the country shortly before the curtain fell, and he was getting trained to go back. He is now like the biggest uh, leader of the, Baptist, uh, the conservative Baptist denomination in Russia. And he was trained there right alongside us, students, because that's what they needed to have happen. They needed that extra training. And I remember a push for students to stop their studies and go over and help with the churches because of all that they had going on and all the rush of Christianity allowed to now come in after years of persecution. I found a lot of things about the strength of the church under persecution, and it was much stronger than we had imagined. I've heard that from the stories that Pavel has told us about his father in Moldova, and just the strength of the church growing, uh, growing under persecution, the refining of the church. But the thing I want to bring to you is something that's convicting to me. It's something one of the Russian pastors said shortly, uh, I think it was 1980, and it was the first year I was there. And he was interviewed by Moody Monthly and by their radio station. And he said something to this effect. In Russia, Christians are tested by hardship. But in America, you are tested by freedom. And testing by freedom is much harder, he said. I couldn't imagine him saying that after what he had gone through. Nobody pressures you about your religion. So you relax and are not so, con- so concentrated on Christ, on his teaching, and how he wants you to live. That is so true. But brothers and sisters, I think the time will be coming more and more where that will not be so true. I don't know how it will look, how long it will take. But these days are not long. J.C. Ryle challenges us. True Christianity will cost a man the favor of the world. He must be content to be thought of ill by man if he pleases God. He must count it no strange thing to be mocked, ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, even hated. He must not be surprised to find his opinions and practices and religion despised and held up to scorn. He must submit to be thought by many a fool, an enthusiast, a a fanatic, to have his words perverted and his actions misrepresented. In fact, he must not marvel if some call him mad. 
The master, Jesus, says, Remember the word that I said to you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Well, there's something else that is done besides the corporate refining that happens. There is the discipline that happens to us personally that will deepen our trust in God. That's what we see in the passage. Uh, The purification process has a distinct impact on each of us personally as individuals. It drives us to God. Uh, Being brought to the end of our rope, so to speak, to a place where there's nowhere to hide or no safety to be found, that is where God drives us to himself. The things that we're we are trusting and show themselves to be faulty and failures. Look again at verse 20 to 25. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. You see that process that God brings? We fall into false securities. It could be bad habits. It could be unhealthy relationships. It could be a love of stuff or things or status. God brings something into our lives. It could look, who knows what it could be? It could be a health issue. It could be a, a breakdown in a relationship. It could be something financial, something vocational. It could be something outside of ourselves that makes us anxious. He brings something into our life that gives us a, a flash of how helpless we actually are. And we get a sense of our lostness apart from God. And so we see the false securities not working, and we have nowhere to turn but exactly where God wants us to turn to him. So he refines us through that discipline by deepening our trust and faith in him. It's very personal. Yeah, there's a bigger refinement to the church, but there's a personal refinement that happens for everybody, and it's happening in your life right now. I, pro- I know it is. I know you have something right now. It's a pain. It's a hardship. It's a discipline. And God is, because he loves you, making you trust him more because you've got nowhere else to go. And there is no better place to be. George Granberry is one of the longest tenured pastors in our presbytery. He's been at Heartland Presbyterian Church in Wichita for 22 years. He, too, happens to be preaching through Isaiah. I'm marveling at the providence of God that brings me to Isaiah 11 before we start Advent. He marvels at God's providence has brought him to Isaiah 40. A week ago Monday, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. He's 60 years old. Just a few days before he preached through Isaiah 40, as a shepherd of a flock, God brings him to this passage. As he feels helpless and he stands up before his flock to preach, this is the passage he has. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Boy, pastors, we hate that when God does that to us. When he gives us the passage that we need to give to you 
but he makes us understand it so you all understand it as well. Now, I'm not suggesting that George is being disciplined by God for sin, but George is being discipled by God through hardship to deepen his faith in Jesus so that the preaching of Jesus has all the more impact for his people. That is the design of hardship in our lives. Don't draw away from God because you are undergoing hardship. That's where you find your endurance for hardship. Draw near to God because you are in need of the comfort that only he can give. It's hard sometimes to discern why God is sending a trial to us. Is it discipline for sin that he's moving us to repent from, like with Israel? Or is he simply bringing hardship to refine you further and deepen your trust in God? The purpose for discipline and hardship or trials, they're all the same. To make us trust Jesus more. J.C. Ryle said, and I'll close with this statement from him and the passage to follow. But it does not cost something. But it does cost something to be a real Christian, according to the standards of the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to be run. Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. Hence arises the unspeakable importance of counting the cost. I close with a passage that would be a wonderful one to memorize. I know there are so many glorious passages in Isaiah. Where do you start? Well, here's one I bet you not many people commit to memory, but now with this view, this is a wonderfully deep and powerful passage. So I close with Isaiah 10, 20 and 21. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Let's pray. Lord, you call us to yourself, and you will bring us there in any way that you see fit, and we thank you for this. Lord, it hurts like a shot when it occurs, but we know it brings healing. We know it brings us what we actually need. I pray, Lord, that you would convict us corporately as a church. Are there ways, O Lord, that we are trusting in the hand that strikes us rather than you? Please, give us corporate repentance for this. But Lord, we recognize that this church is made up of individuals, and all of us have struggles and strains and hardships and discipline in our life from you. Lord, give us pause to analyze this. Ask you for direction. Give us trust in you. Help us to lean on you and not on our own understanding because you will always direct our paths. Lord, may it be said of us that we no more lean on him who struck them, but we lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in your truth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.